Excellent. So we're going to be talking about um, the CCFP exam going through the, the, the guidelines. We're going to kind of progress as we go down from the A's all the way down to the Z's, right? So we, last time we discussed about a little bit of asthma. So I just want to, now you know me guys. What, what topic do I like? There you go. Everybody's like critical care, rural-based critical care. That's where I love. Does that make sense? Well, I've got to start off with a little bit of critical care. And you're probably like, Mike, why are we doing all this critical care? Why are we doing all this? This, 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 uh, you know, what happens when the person decompensates when you're in Sioux Lookout or when you're in Dryden or when you're in Kenora or when you're in Fort Francis. I'm going to throw out some e-sites when you're in Smooth Rock Falls, right? Or when you're in like Horn Pain, you know what I mean? Like, so why are we doing this, right? Um, 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 it's because the approach to a critically ill patient is a little bit, uh, um, uh, approach to a critically ill patient is a little bit different, right? And what are the two things I need for every critically ill patient that I don't have? The first First one is what's the first one? Time, and the next one is there. You go. What did I say, guys? The first thing is time, time and the next thing is excellent, excellent, right? Because when you come up and you have a person with badness, what's that diagnosis again, guys? That diagnosis is excellent. When that diagnosis is badness, right? And you're in and you're in Smooth Rock Falls, right? Where you may not necessarily have tons of resources, and you may not necessarily have tons of equipment, and you may not necessarily have tons of people, right? How you deal with that badness is super, super important. So the approach is, is, uh, is different. All right. And you probably say, oh man, do we have to go through critical care? What? You know, let's talk about let's talk about COPD, please. Let's talk about COPD, and we are in a minute. But, but, our critical critical care come up on the exam, and the answer is. Yes, it's not a question of it might. It's not a question of maybe. It's a question of yes, because part of the C, uh, of the LMCC Part Two component of your examination can it include a critical case or someone who's critically injured, where they're testing your ability to uh, make an assessment and and manage a patient who's critically ill. Everybody say that's going to be on your exam. You pretty well know that, right? They're going to do that. They're going to ask that, right? So what they're testing for is your approach to how you're going to solve that problem. Okay, so let me give you a little case uh, um, that I had not too, too long ago. So 45-year-old guy um, comes into the emergency department, and he is very, very short of breath, right? He's working super, super hard to breathe. They put him in our triage room in Sioux Lookout. Um, they put him in our triage room in Sioux Lookout, and they said, okay, this guy looks really sick. Can you guys, you know, assess him? So what are the three letters you're going to consider, guys? So a, what are the three letters? Maybe. Excellent. So what does the A stand for? Airway. What's my simplest airway question? Open R? Open R? Open R? Excellent, right? That's what I have to do. We have to break it down into basics, right? Because you know what? When you have somebody, and let's say you're on, and you're on that night on call, and let's say I'm at home, and on the example I'm using, let's say I'm out on the lake and I lose my oar, so I'm just going in circles. Does that make sense? And you call and say, and I have no cell phone service, and it sounds like, what, what, what? You're going to be by yourself doing this, right? But do we still need to assess our ABCs? And the answer is? Yeah. We do. We still need to assess our ABCs. Now, for your LMCC part of this examination, do they expect you to assess your ABCs? And the answer is yes. They expect you to articulate them. They're going to give you marks for making sure that you do the ABCs. Because where do we realize a lot of mistakes happen? They happen in that we don't assess the ABCs. Everybody feel me? Summer, you feel me? Can you guys hear me okay? You guys good? I just want to make sure. Sorry. We, we actually hear you well when you 
when you come to the front of the class, but then when you go in the back, it kind of fades out. We're very keen and interested in hearing what you have to say about critical care. Oh, okay, okay. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of limit. Can you guys hear when I'm sort of at the front? Is that okay? <laughs> Can you? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, okay. So I'll restrict my motions here, right? <laughs> Aaron's going to be at the back here. So, I mean, you know, we're going to put up some security tape to keep me from moving to the back and stuff. All right. Okay, so what's, what, am I, what three letters do I have to do? What are those three letters? Again, what are they, guys? ABCs, right? A stands for? What airway? What's my simplest airway question? Open R? Open R? Open R? Excellent, right? If my airway is open, I'm going to move on, right? If my airway is closed, what am I going to do? I have to open it. So this guy, what are the two strategies I have to open up a closed airway, right? What? Chin lift, jaw thrust, right? And what else can I put down? I can put down an oral airway. Are we good so far? That's how your brain has to work in a critical event, right? Because this dude could die. All right. Excellent. So he's talking to me. Doc, I can't breathe. Doc, I can't breathe. I can't breathe, doctor. Help me. Help me. Help me. All right. What does that tell me about his airway? His airway is open for now. What did I say, Sabri? Open. For now. Good. Okay. All right. So it's open for now, right? Okay, what can I move on to next? So what's my simplest breathing assessment is what, guys? Yes or no. You have to assess, is my breathing yes or no, right? That's what you have to do. That's what you have to do in your mind quickly. That's what you have to articulate right away, right? So what's my simplest breathing assessment, guys? Yes or? Yes or? Yes or? Excellent, right? Breathing. Now this guy, he's not breathing very well, but he's breathing. If he wasn't breathing, what would I do? Good. Let me grab my bag and mask. Let me start. You understand? <laughs> Is that crystal clear? All right. All right. Now, what does C stand for? C stands for circulation, right? What's my simplest circulation assessment? Pulse. Yes or? Yes or? Yes or? Excellent. Your simplest pulse assessment is yes or no, right? The minute you don't feel a pulse, what is one neuron going to say to the other neuron, folks? It's going to say, start. You've got to start compressions. That makes sense? You've got to start compressions. You've got to start compressions. What do you got to start, guys? Excellent. So this guy, um, um, basically, he's talking to me. Uh, um, uh, um, he's talking to me. I can see he's not breathing very well, and he has a pulse. Have I done my ABCs? And the answer is, how long should it take you to do your ABCs? Like two seconds. But you have to do them. And on this examination, you have to articulate it. What did I say, guys? You have to? Articulate it. Hi, I'm assessing this gentleman's. Uh, uh, um, um. So when we come inside, if this is an LMC station or, or LMC part of the exam, what do we always say? Okay, you're going to wash your hands, stand to the right, introduce yourself. Does that make sense? Hello, Mr. Johnson, how are you doing today? Oh, doctor, I can't breathe. Okay, I'm assessing the patient's airway, the patient is speaking, I can see the patient is breathing, albeit it's somewhat labored and in distress, and the patient has a pulse. Boom! How many seconds does it take me to say that? Like three, you get marks for that. You don't get, if you don't say that, and you just go, hmm, 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 or let's say if you're thinking it and you don't say it, how many marks do you get for that? Zero. Because they're going to say, oh, you might not know. Or how do I know that you're assessing this? Is that crystal clear? All right. 
Okay. So I did that. I've done my ABCs. Is it going to be important for me to guys, guys to reassess constantly my ABCs? And the answer is, i got to make sure I'm reassessing my ABCs at all times. And what are those four other letters that I came up for, that, that uh, uh, I came up to help you guys? It's actually something I came up to help myself because I used to forget this stuff all the time. Because in a big city, when you do this, chances are by the time you get there, the nurse has already done most of this stuff, right? So when you get the patient, you already have a set of vital signs. You already have a bit of the history. They probably already ticked off half the blood work that you need, right? But when you work out, and let's say you're in Smooth Rock Falls, that may not necessarily happen, right? Alright, so what is that le- what are those four letters called? Omen. What does O stand for? Stands for oxygen. Good stuff. So what would you be expected to say for that patient? Hi, can we please place some um, oxygen? Can we please get the 100% non-rebreather? And can we make sure it's connected to the wall and it's set to flush? Full marks. What did I say? How many marks do you get for that? Full marks. Okay, what does the M stand for of OMIP? What does it stand for, guys? M stands for? Monitor. Monitor, right? So you have to get this patient monitored. So develop, give me a monitor. Because 95% of the time, these cases are not like, hi, you're in Ottawa, and the race team is right beside you. You know what I mean and stuff? And you have this really sick patient. What are you going to do? Call them. You know what I mean? Oh, they're right over there. Don't look at me. Does that make sense? But, you know, in Sioux Lookout, you are the, the critical response team, right? So M stands for monitor. So give me a monitor, guys. Shout out some things. Good. So get the leads, right? Let's make sure that we have the pacing pads, right? Let's get an O2 sat monitor, BP cuff. And what do you want to do with a BP cuff? Cycle it. That's marks, folks. That's golden. You get marks for that. You'd be shocked how many times people do that, and they don't say those things, and they lose all those marks. Does that kind of jive? And then they're worried about, oh, you know, should I give the 2B3A inhibitor or give the Plavix at this, you know, 600 milligram dose? Does that make sense? When you're getting the marks for doing the ABCs and doing the OMIP. Does that kind of jive? You get marks for that. We good so far? All right. What does I stand for? I stands for? IV. IV. If you can't get an IV, what do you start at? An interosseous, right? So make sure, right? So you want to establish early on IV access, right? And P stands for you always want to make sure that you check the what, guys? You always check the? Because the minute you don't feel a pulse, what, do you, what does one neuron say to the other neuron? The one neuron says to the other neuron, start? Start compressions. Get those compressions going, folks. Start those compressions. you got to do that. Start those compressions. Okay, so let's, let's go back to our case here. So I go to this guy, um, Doc, I can't breathe. Talk, I can't breathe. Okay, how would I articulate that on the examination? Okay, hi, stand to the right, wash my hands, introduce myself. Does that make sense? All right. Hi, Mr. Johnson. My name is Dr. Michael Curley. I'm one of the residents here at Thunder Bay Regional Hospital. How may I help you today? Doctor, I am having such a hard time breathing. <sighs> help me, please. <sighs> I'm seeing the light. <sighs> I'm seeing the light and it's getting brighter. Does that make sense? Because I can't breathe, right? Okay, what am I going to be saying? Okay, I've, I've assessed this person's airway. This person is talking. I know their airway is patent now. Two points. Does that make sense? Two points, two seconds. I can see this person that they're breathing, albeit distinct, but they're breathing. And I'm going to check their pulse and they have a pulse that's rapid. Does that make sense? You're going to say that. Okay, Mr. Johnson, we're just going to give you some oxygen. I'm going to be giving the patient 100% oxygen. I'm going to make sure that it's connected to the wall and it's set to flush. Three points. Can we please get the O2 sat probe on the, on the patient, actually? Can we please get a blood pressure cuff and make sure that the blood pressure cuff is set to cycle? 
right? Can we get the leads and pacing pads and make sure that they're true? Does that make sense? Can we get what gauge of IV? Be specific. IV one mark. Huh? Yeah, 14, 18 gauge, something big, right? We get two IVs in the antecubital fossas, right? The only thing better than one IV is two. The only thing better than one IV is two, right? And I'm just going to be continually assessing the pulse. So I've done my omen. Because think about it. There's two things. That's like 12 marks right there, folks. You know that? That's like 12 marks. Right? Is that easy marks? Where do the mistakes happen in critical care? Where do the mistakes happen on the critical care stations on your exam is that people do not articulate that. What do I say? They do not articulate that. They walk up to the patient and they say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I want to do this. I want to do this. And because you're a little bit nervous on exam day, you can forget lots of stuff. And I can give you a station or a case where some guy comes inside and they took, you know, a whole whack load of Dilaudid and they're going like this. <sighs> They're making a sound like snoring, and no one picks up the, the fact that when you're snoring and you have a sick patient, what does it mean? Your airway is obstructed. And you need to do something about it. Okay, let's go back onto our case here. So our guy, he's breathing. I'm getting some information back from my monitors. He's in a sinus tachycardia, let's say, at about 130 beats per minute. His O2 saturation on the 100% non, uh, non-rebreather is, uh, is 96%. He's visibly working very, very hard to breathe. His first blood pressure starts to cycle off. It's 162 over 70. Now do I have a little bit of information? And I'm doing some interventions that get me a little bit of time. Now you're asked to take a focus history and physical. What did I say, A? What is the F word? Not that F word, folks, but focus. Is this high? I'm going to do tactile fremitus now. You know. No, 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 no. You don't have time for that. Does that make sense? You guys hear that, Sudbury? You don't have time for that. On this particular station, right, you want to get the, the high yield stuff. Does that kind of jive? Because this guy is a management station. He's worth tons of marks, right? And you're expected to do history, physical, and do some stuff that's going to help this guy. Does that kind of jive? All right, so what are, some, what are some pertinent history questions that you're going to ask him? Let's talk to you. Doc, I can't breathe. Doc, I can't breathe. Good, excellent. Right? Do you have any chest pain? No, Doc, I don't have any chest pain, man. But man, Doc, my, my chest feels so tight. Oh, man, it's just... <sighs> Doc, I feel so horrible. And they're playing this, this wheezy sound in the background. <sighs> Doc, I can't breathe, Doctor. Help me, Doctor. Give me some other questions that you guys ask on a focus history. Sorry? Yeah, asthma, COPD. Yeah, you know, I've never been. You know, I hate seeing the doctor. Ah, those family doctors—they don't know jack. Does that make sense? I hate. I haven't been to my family doctor in, since he told me to quit smoking 35 years ago. Does that make sense? There you go. I like that. No, no allergies to anything. Medications? Ah, I'm not on any medications. I don't take medications except Marlboro cigarettes. Because just like they told me in those ads back in the 60s, those things can help your heart, right? Excellent, right? So you're going to ask focus history, history sort of question. On physical exam, what are you going to do? We've already done sun. You've connected that patient to a monitor and you're getting continuous vital signs, right? What else are you going to do? Check out some stuff. 
Good. You're going to comment, write this down, comment on general appearance. What did I say? Comment on? Comment. Remember, how many times when you guys are reporting to your staff, they say, what's the question? You know, you're rightly, you know, you're saying, hi, the person has this and this. And what do they say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does the person look? Does that make sense? Have you guys ever had that before? Remember when I was in residency, it always used to happen, right? I used to be presenting my staff, giving them all this information. Hi, there's a history of men too, like, 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 uh, um, um, theochromocytoma in the family, in the aunt. You're telling them all this stuff, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But how does the person look? So that general appearance is important, right? You're going to comment, right? Okay, I'm seeing Mr. Johnson here, and he looks to be in moderate to severe respiratory distress. He seems somewhat anxious. If they spray his face, does that make sense? When some of the spritz are comment, he's diaphoretic. If they paint his face yellow, say he looks jaundiced, right? Comment, because they're going to get points for that you picked it up. If you see a big surgical scar painted on the skin, say there's an obvious surgical scar. Does that make sense? The crystal clear? Yeah. All right. Okay. So we go. He's in. You'd be commenting. You know, he appears to be uh, um, um, in moderate to severe respiratory distress, right? I also take his chest. Let's see here a crap load of wheezes. Does that make sense? What are you going to comment on as well, too? What's going to be important for this case? Accessory muscle use. Does, what did I say, guys? Excellent. Accessory muscle use. You guys hear Sudbury? I just want to make sure I'm not like... Because I, I can barely see. Are you guys okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> All right. Excellent. All right, so this guy has a whole lot of wheezes. You listen to him, and he has a whole lot of wheezes. You know that he's been smoking forever, right? He has not been to see his doctor for a while, right? He's not been to see his doctor for a while. So what do you guys think? What's in, what's in your mind? That, that, that What's on your differential that this could be? And what are you guys going to do to manage this particular case? What are you guys going to do? Huh? Exactly. You could? Okay. So we're going to do an x-ray. Do we want to see lots of investigations now? Are investigations going to save this guy's life right now? Yeah. So why don't you do? Can we please get him some? Yeah, can we please get him some Ventolin? Can we please get him, you know, but you wouldn't say, you wouldn't say Ventolin. What would you say on the exam? Sal Beautiful, right? Keep it generic. Does that make sense? You probably, no, you won't. But like I always say, keep it generic. If you don't know, man, I know I'm supposed to not give a Vandia, but I know the other one's okay, but I know its name is Actos, but I don't know if it's Rosie or Pio. Does that make sense? Then write Actos. Does that kind of jive? Yeah. But try to stick to the generic names if you can, right? So you might say, can we please give this patient some uh, 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 um, salbutamol? We give him five milligrams nebulized, right? Can we give him some ipotropium bromide? Right? We're going to talk about the dose of these things, 500 mics. Does that kind of jive? And they have it running in the steam. And guess what? Oh, wow, doctor, I feel so much better. My breathing is so much better. Right? Man, doctor, I'm so I'm feeling so so much better, right? That's what they're going to expect you to do. Do you have all the information? You don't have all the information. Do you have to act before you know the CBC? Do you have to act before you know the troponin? Do you have to act before you know what the X-ray looks like? You do, right? As I always say, when we're doing our simulations in the Sioux Lookout, what do we do? We don't get chest X-rays. We wait for chest X-rays. 
Is that crystal clear? We call at 2 in the morning, an hour and a half later, the x-ray might not be up. Is that crystal clear? All right, folks. So what do you think this guy's diagnosis one? What did he have? Sudbury, give me an answer. Shout out an answer for me, Sudbury. What do you think this guy had as his diagnosis? Hi, Sudbury. What do you guys think he had as his diagnosis? Excellent. You're going to go with asthma or COPD for 100. Excellent job. What do you think is likely in a guy that smoked for years? What do you think is the likely diagnosis versus asthma versus COPD? I like it. It still could be asthma, right? But what do you think is the likely diagnosis? If I run in the exam, what is the one most likely answer do you think? Do they like to do that on the exam? Like most likely? What do you think the diagnosis is? Right? Excellent. Perfect stuff. So, folks, let's talk about COPD. Last time we talked a bit about asthma. Now we're going to talk a bit about COPD. Is that cool? Crystal Claire, guys? What is COPD? What is COPD? Excellent. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. What is it? Everybody repeat after me. It's progressive. What did I say, guys? It's progressive. Everybody say partially reversible. What did I say, guys? Is it fully reversible? And the answer is? What disease is more fully reversible? The more fully reversible one is? Asthma. But so in the guideline, they've actually put it, it's progressive, which means that it tends over time if you don't treat it to get worse. Partially reversible, so you don't quite make it to that FEV1 change of 12, uh, 12 to 14%. Does that kind of jive? Is it obstructive or restrictive? It tends to be obstructive, right? CO, right? What's it associated with? What is the condition that it's associated with? Number one, alpha 1 antitrypsin? How many of you, alpha 1? Let's do the serum alpha 1 antitrypsin level, folks. Let's order that. Are we going to do that? What's the condition? They put it right in the name. It's largely due to smoking. So progressive, partially aversible, obstructive airway disease, largely due to smoking. Now, what do you get with COPD? You get these things where transiently your COPD gets worse. And what do we call those things in COPD? Exacerbations. And what happens? Over time, you get, you, if it's untreated, what happens? You get more exacerbations, and they tend to get worse. That's COPD, folks. Progressively partially reversible obstructive uh, airway disease, largely due to smoking, associated with uh, periods of transient worsening, and over time, these, uh, these periods happen more frequently and get more severe. Boom, COPD. Is that crystal clear? All right, so it's not, the same, it's not the same pathogenesis, right, as asthma. Because in most cases of COPD, I would say the vast majority of cases of COPD, there usually is a history at some point that the person was smoking, right? It's not all cases, right? Alpha-1 antitrypsin, there's other secondary cases. But are these common things? Alpha-1 antitrypsin? Exactly. All right. So let me go. Okay, that's our definition of COPD. We know it's a disorder largely due to smoking, right? So do, can you have different levels of severity, guys? Right? We have different levels of severity, right? So it's important to do what kind of assessment to your patients? Everybody say a functional assessment. What can I do, guys? Excellent. 
Because that sometimes is a lot more important than spirometry. Because what you want to be able to see is what can this person do? Is this person so distant where they only get a little distant when they're playing squash? You know, they're going, oh, squash. Return. Oh, they're only a little bit distant. You know, they're playing squash. You understand? You're playing squash. Are you so distant, right? Right? Are you so Disneyic where um, um, even the act of dressing yourselves, even the act of doing your activities of daily living makes you short of breath? Is one a whole lot more severe than the other? Yes. So one thing, you want to do that? Functional assessment. What did I say, guys? Eh? You guys reading the guidelines something called the MRC class. It goes from everything, right? Note for the exam. It goes from everything. It's five levels of, of how distant, how bad are your lungs in COPD. And it goes from you're playing squash and you might have to take a puff, you know, every 25 minutes. Oh, turn. You know? Oh, does that make sense? Right? You can go from that, right, to I can barely, I get so short of breath that I cannot dress myself. I cannot do my activities of daily living. Does that make sense? So functional assessment. Now what else? What's that stuff called when we get people and patients to blow into those things? What is it called? Spur? Spirometry, right? What's the first thing to change that's going to make you think COPD? Your FEV1 over your FVC. What did I say? Your FEV1 over your? Right? So remember, what is, what is your FEV1? It's forced expiratory volume in a second. So when you have obstructed lung disease, air has a harder time. Um, air can get in, but it, cannot, it has a harder time getting out. So it's going to extend the time that it takes you to take a breath out. If you compare your FEV1 over your forced vital capacity, the first thing that's going to change is going to drop below 0.7. What number did I say? It's going to drop below point? There you go. And COPD. Are you guys feeling me, Sudbury? Are you guys good? There we go. All right. And then after that, right, you start to see changes in your FEV1. Does that make sense? An abnormal FEV1 is going to be under 80%. What did I say, guys? Under 80%. But what did I tell you guys? Remember, what's the first thing that can change? Can you have people out there with FEV1s of 85% and an, FE, and an FEV1 over FEC ratio of 0.4? Can that happen? And the answer is yes. Does that person likely have really bad COPD? Probably not. But is that their risk? Do they have mild COPD? Yes. And then it's mild, moderate, to severe, right? So mild is like 50 to 80, moderate is kind of 30 to 50 of the FEV1, and severe is under 30% predicted, right? That means lung badness. What did I say, guys? Lung? But I want you to do both assessments. What is the first, what is the first assessment or one of the assessments I must do? What kind of an assessment? That F word? Not that F word. Functional assessment. What is their MRC class? How far can they walk? What's their quality of life? Right? I have to do that assessment as well. In addition, I can do some spirometry. Does that make sense? All right, so we talked a little bit about what COPD is. We talked a little bit about how we grade it, how we determine how severe COPD is different than, is different than really, really mild COPD. Does that crystal clear? Okay. All right, let's do this one quickly. Let's give everybody Atrovent and Ventolin and send them home. Are we good? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Come on. I shouldn't be hearing that from the Sioux Lookout, right? You understand? I can't wait until evaluation time. <laughs> the 
Does that make sense? I can't wait. <laughs> I know. How many R's are there in repeat rotation again? <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Right? I'm just playing, folks. Right? So is that how we do it? Is it just medications and boom and there we go? Is that how we do it? No, that's not how we do it, right? What I say my mantra, so anytime you have a disease and this is chronic, right? What can you want to do? What's the L word, folks? The L word is? Lifestyle modification. Is there a lot of lifestyle modification you can do with COPD? And the answer is? Yes. Right? You can do what I want you to do. Now, okay, let's just talk. We're not even going to talk about medications right now. I want to talk about lifestyle. And I want to talk about, let's say, what do we call that? It's a team of multiple disciplines, otherwise known as a? There you go. So write that down. You understand? Can that help you in chronic disease? Can it help you in asthma? Can it help you later on in the night when we talk about diabetes? And the answer is yes. Is it recommended? Do these things get big parts of the guideline? And the answer is yes. And I want to put another third thing there. Let's say I give somebody who are on the exam stem and say, you have a patient and they have severe end-stage COPD. And their FEV1 is 5% of predicted. And they've been inside hospital for 9 to 12 times this past year with COPD exacerbations, right? And they, their, their O2 sat on room air is 83% on a good day. Right? What do you say? End of? End of life care. Is that part of guidelines now? They put that in guidelines. Have a discussion. If someone has something, when we get to heart failure, and I say, hi, um, a question on the exam, you have somebody and their ejection fraction is 9%, and this is the fifth time you've seen them in the eMERGE, and this is the fifth time that you've admitted them, and their ejection fraction, when you look past over the last year, has gone from 20% from to 9%, what does the guideline says? Should we have a discussion about end-of-life care? Exactly. They start putting those things in the guideline now, right? Okay. Okay, so COPD, right? You got this condition. We're not going to talk about the medications yet because I want you guys, always when you go into the exam, to think, remember, there's two ways I have of managing, of managing an issue. What is it? I have pharmacologic and I have non-pharmacologic. I want to force you guys to think of the non-pharmacologic first so you remember to write it down because it's important. Because for a lot of the stuff, the medications we give for COPD, they're not actually mortality reducing. Is that crystal clear? They help with symptoms. I want to backtrack for one second. Is there any evidence to screen for COPD? Like in the general population? Is there any evidence to screen? Yes. Huh? In the general population. What do we screen for? We screen for whether or not you smoke. Yeah. Screen questions. Huh? Screen questions. Exactly. You can have questions that you may ask in symptomatic people that may make, you, may make your spider sense start tingling. But you know what, yo? I think this person may have COPD. And what might be some of those questions? Because guess what? 50% of people with COPD don't know that they have it. What are going to be some of those questions or some of those clinical features that you're going to think of? So I give you a stem on the exam and says this person has these features and you can write, give me three things that this, thing, that, that, that this patient could have. So think about some patients that you've had and they've never gotten that diagnosis of COPD, right? What kind of things did they present with? Or what kind of things are you concerned about? Shout out some things, guys. Huh? Cough. Love it. Chronic cough. 
sputum production. You ever have those patients? Ah, doctor, I'm having a cut. Ah, 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 look at what it, ah, it looks better. And you're like, oh my God, you brought that out of your lung? Does that make sense? Have you ever had that moment? And, and you're like, oh man, you're really sick. And they're like, no man, thanks so much. I feel great. Ah, ah, ah. All this stuff comes up. So chronic cough, chronic sputum uh, um, um, production. What else can be there? Exercise intolerance. What did I say, guys? Exercise? Man, you know what? I, I'm, I don't have COPD. It is perfectly normal to only be able to walk up four flights of stairs and stop twice to go get your breath. Does that make sense? I had a patient once tell me that, you know, he's 55. It is perfectly normal to have to take a 20-minute break after you come up a flight of stairs. I'm 55, damn it. I'm not like a young whippersnapper like you. I have shirts older than you. I'm 55. Does that make sense? That's what he told me. I'm 55. You can't tell me shit. Don't you? <laughs> Does that make sense? Right? So is that exercise intolerance, guys? So some, are your patients necessarily going to bring that out right away? And the answer is, they're not. You need to ask it. I'm on the exam. You need to ask it. If that was a sue, I would expect you to ask it. Does that make sense? Because they're not just going to come, oh, yeah, you know, my exercise tolerance is fine. It's good. Like, I can, I can walk up a whole three steps without stopping, and that's a lot better than last week, so I don't have a problem, right? The problem is your standards are too high. Do you understand? Right? All right. Excellent, right? So we're going to get into non-pharmacologic management, right? How do I manage a person with COPD? What's the single best intervention that you guys want to make sure you write down? What did I say? You want to quit? 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 Excellent. Remember last academic day we talked about smoking cessation. Is that a topic that could come up on the exam? Yes, that's the only intervention, one of the th only interventions that can change things significantly in COPD. If you have a person on the exam and they had COPD and they were continuing to smoking, every single management station would mention some aspect that that person needs to quit smoking, right? You get points for mentioning that. Right? What else? Give me a non-pharmacologic management thing. We get it around this time, you know, in November they come out. Huh? Flu vaccine. Right? So influenza is vaccination. When do these people get really bad is when they get things like influenza and pneumonia. Does that kind of jive? Because the problem with COPD is what happens? You can get air in, but you cannot get air. And if you can't get air out, your lungs hyperinflate. And if your lungs hyperinflate, you're in the bad part of the respiratory curve and your tidal volume, folks, goes down. And if your tidal volume goes down, you get problems. What does Ventolin and those agents do is they help you get air out. Because when you get air out, you shift into a better part of the respiratory curve. And when you shift into that better part of the respiratory curve, your tidal volume goes back up. And what can be a precipitant for a COPD exacerbation, right? What can be a precipitant for a COPD exacerbation, right? And a really, really bad one can be a viral illness. And what's a big viral illness that's hanging around this time that we have a very good, uh, that we have, that, we have uh, that can offer some protection, especially to high-risk people, is influenza. Does that kind of jive? Guidelines already, already recommend, too, the pneumococcal vaccination. But when you look at the evidence, there's way more evidence for the, the influenza. Does that make sense? Even though the guideline will recommend both. So vaccinations is important. Is that crystal clear? If the person has severe diseases, discussing end-of-life care important? The answer is yes. 
You're going to write that down. This per- if you think, man, this person has a really, really bad attack, or this person's COBT, COPD chronically is really, really bad, you know, who's best positioned, I think, to have end-of-life care? Who do you think is better? The ICU doctor who's just meeting that patient for the first time when the BiPAP mask is off and everybody's freaking out to say, you know what I think? Or is it the family doctor that's known that patient and that family for years? Who do you think is better poised to have that discussion? There you go. Why do you think they put that in the guideline and say, listen, this is a disease, right, where, where you can have really, really bad lungs that can kill you. You want to make sure that you have that discussion on end-of-life care. Is that crystal clear? Now, what kind of team can I get you involved in, guys? A multi-disciplinary team. What kind, of dis- what, what kind of team? A team of multiple disciplines. Because guess what, folks? COPD, part of the definition, I forgot to mention this, part of the definition is that is COPD just a lung problem? And the answer is... You can have systemic manifestations. What kind of manifestations? Systemic. So it's not just a lung issue. Well, your lungs are bad, but everywhere else is good. Is that how it is in COPD? No. So what happens in COPD? Right? What happens in COPD is that you can't breathe. When you can't breathe, sometimes your O2 sat falls. If you're old and you have osteoporosis, you might also fall. If you fall and break your hip, 25% of people die. COPD can give you pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension can cause RV strain, RV failure. What can that do? It can give you leg edema. When you have leg edema, it's like walking around with six milk cartons around your leg. If you're walking around with six milk cartons around your leg, does that make sense? And what could happen? You could fall. And you could break your hip and 25% of the time you can die. Does that make sense? So is PT going to be important? And the answer is yes. Is OT going to be important to see how well are you functioning in your given environment? The answer is yes. Man, medications cost money, man. For somebody, so your social worker to get you funding, does that make sense? Your social worker to help you. Maybe you need an environment where you need to, you need to have additional assistance. Is that going to be important? And the answer is yes. Multidisciplinary team. Right? Other non-pharmacologic management stuff. What about diet, guys? Is it time you can eat all the fried chicken you want, right? Because you got COPD. Are we going to say that? Are we going to say that, folks? Exactly. Low-risk guidelines. Does that make sense? Is exercise going to be important as well, too? Exercise as well, too. In fact, there's a type of comprehensive exercise program as well as multidisciplinary team that is very, very effective in COPD. And what's it called, guys? It's called pulmonary? You're going to write that down. Pulmonary? Because it works. What did I say? Because it works. Right? There's like 23 randomized controlled trials that show that pulmonary rehab can help with dyspnea. It can help you get less fatigue. It can make you feel better. So you can remember to use it. Does that make sense in the applicable groups? Does that kind of jive? Is alcohol to low-risk guideline going to be important as well, too? Everybody say? Is managing diabetes going to be important as well, too? Right? Because your diabetes are out of control, you're going to have bad diabetic nephropathy, bad diabetic neuropathy. If you have COPD and you can't breathe, your oxygen saturations are going to fall. You're going to get right heart failure as well, too. You're going to get four milk cartons around your leg. Make sense? 
when you get those four milk cartons and you decide to walk a little bit, what could happen? You could fall and, 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 and when you fall, you could break your hip and 25% of people, what does it happen to them if they break their hip and they're elderly today? Die. That's why your multidisciplinary team is important, right? You don't want to discharge the patient from, from, from respirology only to have them end up a week later on ortho. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? All right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the pharmacologic stuff that we can do. Is that crystal clear? All right. So remember, it's goal-directed therapy. What did I say, guys? Subbury, repeat. What did I say? What kind of therapy? What do we do? What kind of therapy, Subbury? Goal-directed. The excellent. It's goal-directed therapy, right? I have a goal. I'm going to apply a therapy to meet that goal. If I don't meet that goal, I modify my therapy. If I'm at my goal, right, then I can continue doing it with lifestyle interventions. Is that crystal clear? That's a central idea in the guidelines we're going to talk about, right? It's like in diabetes. It's like in a lot of different things. And in COPD, we're going to talk about this, is that do the puffers change mortality by much? And the answer is no. They help with symptoms. They help you sleep better at night. They help you, they help you where you can walk farther at the mall. They help you play squash longer. Does that make sense? They help you win squash. <laughs> right? They help you play squash for longer, right? They can help improve your pulmonary function, right? But do they have a significant mortality benefit? And the answer is no. Right? That's why it's goal-directed therapy. I am trying to get you to the goal where everybody is, in, is as close as they can to an MRC class one as they can get, which is basically they're only getting symptoms with prolonged strenuous activity. I want them to get the... That's what I want people to achieve. And if you can do that with just a little Ventolin, then that's fine. Because adding... If you can do that with a little bit of Ventolin, or you can do that with a little bit of Atrovent, guess what? Adding all that other stuff does not change mortality. And it doesn't make the person feel better because they already feel fine and you've met your goals. But what can it do? It makes their pocket and their wallet smaller. Does that make sense? And potentially, I mean, polypharmacy, is that a big thing, guys? You, know, you have your atrovent, you know, sprayed in your eye. Oh my God, my glaucoma. Does that make sense? <laughs> Does that kind of jive? Can polypharmacy be something that in the elderly especially, in everybody, but in the elderly especially can be a big problem? All right. Okay, let's rock on, folks. Let's rock on. So, it's goal-directed therapy. So what happens is that people have mild symptoms. Does that make sense? We can start off with, we have um, different bronchodilators that we can use, right? We have anticholinergics. Repeat it. I have anti, right? And I have beta agonists. What did I say? Excellent. These are both bronchodilators. What kind of are they? They're bronco. And I have short-acting um, beta agonists, and I have short-acting uh, um, short-acting anticholinergics. I also have long-acting beta agonists, and I have long-acting anticholinergics. Are we crystal clear? Yeah. Are we following so far? So what do we do for people who are not that sick? You can start them on a short-acting agent. Does that make sense on a PRN basis? Does that make sense? As they get more symptomatic, that's when you can add a more longer-acting agent. Does that make sense? 
So you can either add a long-acting anticholinergic or a long-acting beta agonist if they're more symptomatic. Because remember, you're not titrating to get them on a whole bunch of medications. You're titrating to get them to meet your goals. This is vitally important in humans when we talk about CHF. Does that kind of drive? You're trying to get them to meet your goals. Can they meet their goals? Because so much of whether we put in ICDs or CRTs depends on what your functional status is. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? So everybody at the bottom of the rung gets lifestyle modification. What do they get? Lifestyle modification, right? Right? Vaccinations, those types of things, right? Diet, exercise. Next thing are short-acting bronchodilators. What do I say? Short-acting bronchodilators. Then after that, I have long-acting bronchodilators. What do they say? Long-acting? Excellent. What are the two on the market, actually? There's actually three. We're going to put that in the vault. I'm going to show you what the third one is in the market. Does that make sense? Right? So what, are the, what is a long-acting anticholinergic that we have? Yeah, anticholinergic. Tetotropium. Does that make sense? That's, in the, that's the drug Spiriva. It's a long-acting anticholinergic. How is it given? It's a little pill that you put inside the thing and you press the button, you break it, and you suck back on it. So if I give you a stick, so to take that medication, you have to be able to take up little pills and put them in that little device. Does that make sense? So if you have bad rheumatoid arthritis, if I were to ask you a question like that, how well do you think that person is going to be able to take up that little pill and put them in that device? Do you think it's going to happen very well? No. Probably not. But your multidisciplinary team is going to help you recognize that. You know what? Your occupational therapist is going to do an assessment and say, this person has difficulty due to their rheumatoid arthritis with fine dexterity. So if you can use something else, it's probably going to be beneficial. See how it can help you? All right. So I have short-acting agents, right? I have longer-acting agents, right? That I could either add to that, right? Now, is, now is, is COPD like asthma? But wait, we did asthma last time. Didn't we have corticosteroids there? But it's the same thing, right? Like COPD, we don't give steroids. Like isn't Advair, isn't it fluticasone and salmeterol, right? And Simbacord is fometerol and budesonide, right? Like where, where are the steroids? Is COPD like asthma in the sense that, is COPD like asthma in the sense that the steroids have the same type of effect as they do in answer, asthma? And the answer is? The answer is no, right? What do you actually want? If you actually read the guideline, you know what's actually before steroids? It's something called pulmonary rehab. What did I say, guys? Pulmonary rehab. Because what's the only thing steroids do? Steroids decrease your exacerbation rate. Does that make sense? What do they do? They decrease your exacerbation rate. If you read the guideline, they'll talk about if you have more than one exacerbation per year. So two or more, sorry. Or one or less. Does that kind of jive? that you're going to be more likely to incline to do an earlier corticosteroid in people with that have more frequent exacerbations. Does that make sense? Because what do they do? They can decrease the exacerbation rate in, addition, uh, in combination with a long-acting agent. But do they change your FEV1? And the answer is no. Do they make you run faster? No. Do they make you play squash better? No. Do they make you sleep better at night? No. They can only decrease your exacerbation rate in the context of being with a, 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 a long-acting agent. Can everybody feel me? Are you guys okay? Sabri, can you feel me? You guys understanding? Let me see if I can turn this off because I can barely... 
dim. I'm just trying to dim the room here so I can see on the screen a little bit better. There we go. I'm just... No, that's good. That's good. Okay, excellent. Are you guys following Sudbury? You guys good? All right. So if you read the guideline, that's why they talk about when you have, and you have more severe symptoms, especially in context of having greater exacerbations, you'll see the cortical steroid in there. Because it decreases your exacerbation rate in combination with these longer acting agents. Is that crystal clear? Right? What's after that? If you have really, really bad, you may have to consider oxygen, right? No, is that, listen, is, is, is there criteria for giving oxygen? There's criteria, right? Right? Does everybody benefit in oxygen and COPD? No. Right? You have to have a high hemocrit, you know what I mean? Or signs of right heart failure, does that make sense? Sorry? Or a low PAO2. Yeah, low PAO2, right? Those people benefit from oxygen. And what kind of oxygen is it? Is it like oxygen that's on during Matlock and off during Golden Girls an hour and a half later? Is that the kind of oxygen? No. It's basically all the time, at least 15 hours a day. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's kind of, if you're going to give oxygen, you got to go all out with the oxygen. Does that make sense? Wrong answer on the exam. They only feel like using the oxygen, you know, two hours a day when they smoke. Does that make you know, no, 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 you stop the oxygen. Does that make sense? That's dangerous, right? Those type of questions catch people on exams, right? Is that crystal clear, guys? All right. Let's put some stuff in the vault here. New, new class of medication came out with COPD, right? right? And of course, you know, end-stage things are things like theophylline, right? So you can now consider using theophylline people with COPD. That's really, really bad. I hate theophylline. You have to measure a whole bunch of levels and stuff. And, you know, people can take bad, bad overdoses with it. And it can make people totally symptomatic, right? But it is part if people have more severe COPD. If you have end-stage COPD, so really, 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 really bad COPD, and you basically have a lot of exacerbation rates, sometimes people might put you on a chronic macrolide, right? To kind of keep you just, you have end-stage COPD, they may actually put you on a chronic macrolide to kind of reduce your chance of, of having all these exacerbations and lowering your quality of life near the end of your life. Does that make sense? But that's not stuff that we do with the average person with COPD. Is that crystal clear? Useful so far, guys? All right. New medication that came out. Yeah, what is it called, guys? Roflimulast, right? What kind of class of medication is it? It's a new COPD drug. What did I say? Sudbury's, there's a new drug. So what does that mean? Is that if I were to ask this question on the examination, and I said classes of medications, you guys could say, shout out some classes, guys. You could say... We could say what? Excellent. Phosphodiesterase type 4 inhibitors. Roflimulast. It's a new class of medication that's been about, about in a month. Now, to be honest with you, I've never, I have like one patient who was on this stuff, right? The problem is, is that they didn't compare this to a lot of combination therapy. Like, you don't know if this added to something like, 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 like Advair and Spireva, which is fluticasone, budesonide, uh, fl uh, um, flu uh, fluticasone and uh, salmeterol, as well as epitropium bromide. If you add this stuff to it, we don't know if your lungs, you know, do a whole lot better, right? We know you could probably use it like how you use, you know, a long-acting anticholinergic, right? That's usually what they compare these things to. But it's a class. You can consider using it. Is that 
Huh? It's a pill. It's a pill. What's it called? Roflimulas. What is it called, Sudbury? <laughs> Sudbury? Can you hear me, Sudbury? It's called Roflim, you last. Ro, yeah. Can you guys hear? Yeah. Uh, Roflim, you last. Yeah, Roflim, you last. Someone get the spelling there. So I don't say R O F. Someone look it up there. Google it for me. Yeah. Shout it out a little bit louder for our certain Sudbury colleagues here. It would be. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. They're just gonna. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent. It's a phosphodiesterase type four. Does that make sense? Are you gonna use it much? Probably not. Do you need to know that it's a class of medication on this exam that you could potentially use? And the answer is yes. Is that good so far? All right, so we have to talk a little bit, guys. That's for chronic COPD. Now, remember we said COPD, half of it too, has to involve is that you get these transient periods where you can get COPD exacerbations. What did I say, guys? Exactly, right? What is a COPD exacerbation? Give me a definition, folks. Perfect. Three things you got to remember. Cough, sputum, dyspnea. What did I say? Repeat it. Repeat it. Sudbury, repeat it. Oh, man. <laughs> Excellent. That causes you to use, this is key guys, I might ask this this year, right? Is it, is it like 40% of people said two years ago that bring you to the hospital? And the, that answer is wrong. What answer is the right answer that causes you to use more rescue bronchodilator medication? What did I say guys? A COPD exacerbation at, at its simplest is basically a transient period where you have an increasing cough, sputum, or dyspnea that causes you to use more of your increased uh, um, 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 short-acting bronchodilating agents. Is that crystal clear? So do all COPD exacerbations present to the hospital? The answer is no. Most of them don't. Does that kind of jive? So the person who has mild COPD who comes into your office and says, yeah, for the last week and a half, I've noticed a, a bit of a worsening cough, and I'm noticing some impaired exercise intolerance that's giving me some extra dyspnea, what could I write on the line on the exam is I could say, you are having a COPD exacerbation. If that was a sue, and that person I gave you that, and they say, remember when we talk about sues and how to pass your sues, is that you have to give what you think is going on, they would expect on the exam that you say, I think you're having a COPD exacerbation. Is that crystal clear? Cough, sputum, or dyspnea that causes you to use an increased amount of your short-acting rescue bronchodilator medication. Is that crystal clear? That is an exacerbation. It has nothing to do with whether or not you go on BiPAP in the hospital. And they want us as family doctors to realize that because most people with exacerbations, do they go to the hospital? No. They present to their family doctors.
the worst cases will present to the hospital, right? But a lot of people, right? A lot of people will present to their family doctors. All right, so you got two different types of COPD exacerbations, right? Right? You have some that are simple and the others that are called complicated. What did I say? There's ones that are called? And there's ones that are called? Complicated, right? Okay, give me an example of a simple COPD exacerbation. It's basically a person who has the, the symptoms, but they're not that sick otherwise. Do they have bad ischemic heart disease? No. Are they on chronic oxygen therapy? No. Is their FEV1 probably greater than 50%? Yes. And then we have more complicated COPD exacerbations. Complicated COPD exacerbations are those exacerbations that are the exact opposite of simple. So they have lots of comorbidities, like ischemic heart disease, right? They, have lots, they can have a lot of cor or, um, comorbidities, right? Sorry, what Diabetes. Yeah, they can have diabetes, right? But what else they can have? They've been on antibiotics recently, right? It's more complicated. The FEV1 tends to be under 50%. And what can you see? What can I throw on the exam? Because they won't ask you that other stuff because they'll say that's too nitpicky. What will I say? This person comes into the hospital and the first thing on their history is that they're on home O2. What is one neuron going to say to the other neuron, folks? That automatically any exacerbation they have is automatically what type? Complicated. Is that kind of jive? That's more of a complicated exacerbation, right? So you have somebody that comes inside and they have a COPD exacerbation. What do you do, folks? Right? You come inside like my patient who you thought, exactly, what's the first thing you write down? Do there? ABCs. That's what you do. Because they can't breathe. And you need to breathe to live. If you don't write down ABCs, I'm going to say you don't understand ABCs. That's what you do. Does that kind of jive? You have to assess their ABCs, right? Kind of that thing that we were doing in kind of almost critical care that we started off the night with, right? I have to do my ABCs in my omen, right? Got to do that. All right. What do you have to give them, right? As their intervention, I need to do, when you can't breathe, you have badness because you need to breathe to live. So I need to give you stuff that works quickly or in a long time. I need to give you stuff that works right now. And what are you going to give? You're going to give short-acting bronchodilators. Does that make sense? You can give them either nebulization or you can give them MDI. Does that make sense? You actually get better deposition with what way? MDI or nebulization? Uh, MDI. MDI with what? Arrow chamber. Oh. Oh. Arrow chamber. What? Appropriate spacer device. Are you guys going to write arrow chamber on the exam? No, because an arrow chamber is a brand name, and guess what, folks? It's more expensive than if you write age congruent spacer device. And when we talk about asthma, how am I going to do? I'm going to give that MDI. I'm not just going to write the prescription for Ventolin. I'm going to say the prescription is for salbutamol, 2 to 4 puffs Q, 2 to 4 HPRN, plus an age congruent spacer device. Oh, man. Everybody's like, man, are they that picky? Don't be so picky, right? That's why I got out for life too. You know, I learned this after some time that when I'd have patients and they were on, they were on, um, they were on, um, um, 
They were on Aero Chambers, and I just write down Aero Chamber. Aero Chamber is a brand name. It's like it's like if you write down Tylenol versus acetaminophen. If you right now go to the Shoppers Drug Mart and you say I want some Tylenol, and you versus you say I want some you know generic brand acetaminophen, is there a bit of a price difference, folks? There is a price difference. It's the same thing with the Aero Chamber, right? Doing the same thing, right? But one is a lot more expensive. I'm shocked. It's a lot more expensive than the other, right? All right. So you can get these things via MDI. You can give them through 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 with an arrow chamber, right? So you can give them via an MDI with an arrow chamber. You can also give them uh, 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 um, via a, a wet nebulization. Does that kind of jive? But you want to make sure that you give a good bronchodilation. Why? The, when people have COPD, what's wrong with their lungs? They're, are their lungs too big or too small? Their lungs are too? Their lungs are too big. And when your lungs are too big, you move into the back part of the curve and your tidal volume goes down. And if your tidal volume continues to go, to go, to go down, you are going to end up dead. Because what muscle is going to shut down, folks? What muscle is going to shut down? your diaphragm. So what do I have to do? The bronchial dilators that I give you for COPD, right? The, the Ventolin, the attribute that I can give you short acting is going to cause you to get some air out. And when you get air out, that means you shift back into a good part of the respiratory curve and your tidal volume goes back up. And what muscle is a lot happier, guys? What muscle is a lot happier? Your diaphragm. It's not going to shut down. So that's why we have to give aggressive bronchodilation. Does that kind of jive? Remember when we talked about asthma last time? We said that the, one of the biggest predictors of what, how bad your asthma is is how much short-acting bronchodilators are you using. Because if they're not working, you got issues. All right. What does everybody get as well, too, with a COPD exacerbation? Everybody tends to get prednisone or some sort of cortical steroid. I shouldn't say pre prednisone, a cortical steroid. What do we give a? Cortical steroids. Remember, do cortical steroids, do we use them in chronic states for COPD? No. Do we use them for acute exacerbations for 10 to 14 days? Probably can get away with seven, new, new evidence suggests? Yes. Is that crystal clear? Now, you have to ask yourself, too antibiotic or not? What did I say, guys? Too antibiotic or not? Like Hamlet. How many people had to read Hamlet back in high school? How many people loved reading Hamlet back in high school? I hated Hamlet. I couldn't stand Shakespeare. I was like, why can't this guy talk normally? Like, thou and this and my tither is nither. You know what I mean and stuff? <laughs> what the hell was he talking about? Does that make sense? I hated it, right? My tither is nither, or something like that. You know what I mean? I don't even know. I remember it. It's in Hamlet's. My tither is nither. Come hither. Right? Like, who says that, right? How can we just talk normally, right? Right? All right, so you have to ask yourself, right now, in any COPD exacerbation that you have, you're going to ask yourself whether or not you have purulent secretions, yes or no. What did I say? Whether or not you have purulent secretions, yes or? Because you only give antibiotics to people with purulent secretions. Does that kind of jive? Everybody following so far? So if I say, hi, I'm having cough, and I'm having increased exercise intolerance, right, and I have a mild exacerbation, are you going to say, okay, here's your prescription for your levofloxacin? No, because I'm not having purulent secretions. Does that make sense? Are you going to give me more puffers or make sure I'm taking my puffers appropriately? Yes. Are you going to make sure that I'm on a steroid? Yes. Are you going to give me antibiotics in that context? No. Because I have a mild exacerbation and I, and I don't have purulent secretions. Does that make sense? 
So we only give antibiotics to people with purulent secretions. Is that kind of jive? Following so far? All right. Now, okay, let's say I have purulent secretions. What am I going to do now? I've got to ask myself, what antibiotic am I going to give? And that's where our simple and our complicated comes into role. What did I say? Simple versus complicated. Are we crystal clear? So simple exacerbations, i.e. your FEV1 is greater than 50%, you don't have bad ischemic heart disease, you're not on oxygen, you don't have the other comorbidities, right? you weren't just on antibiotics the last three months, you don't get frequent exacerbations, is that kind of job? You have a simple exacerbation, a lot of people with COPD fit into that category, you can get away with the cheap stuff. What did I say, guys? You can get away with the cheap stuff. Because using the more expensive stuff does not result in any better outcomes in those people. Does that make sense? Now, what's the cheap stuff? Give me some example of cheap antibiotics. Yeah, I can use? Septra. You can use doxycycline. You can use amoxyl. Does that make sense? Sure, you can give expensive stuff. But what is expensive stuff going to do? It's going to cause your wallet to shrink. And that's not good. Does that kind of jive? If you have a more complicated exa um, exacerbation, right? If they have a more complicated exacerbation, that's when you have to get away with a bit more, the bit more intricate agents, right? So things like the clavulin, um, things like the levofloxacin. Actually, the newer, the newest update of the guideline from 2012 says that probably in people who have a, 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 a more complicated exa exacerbation, your drug of choice of most preference, if it's complicated, is probably levofloxacin. Because you know like gram-negative, like pseudomonas and H-flu and those types of things can become problematic. Does that make sense? And those people who are more complicated, right? So there's lots of other options, but they say that's probably their preference, right? Is that crystal clear, guys? Is that useful? All right, let's, let's do some snappers, y'all. Chronic cough. Is chronic cough an issue? We're going to go fast. We are going to go, I'm going to go into like power mode. Does that make sense? Because we're going to go through cough, croup, bronchiolitis right now. We have B's and C's to do. Does that make sense? Okay, cough. Remember, we have whole things. We have acute cough. What did I say, guys, we have? We have acute cough, right? We have subacute cough, and then we have chronic cough. Does that make sense? So we have acute, subacute, chronic. Does that make sense? Different guidelines will talk about the ax uh, uh, um, uh, exact arbitrary time limits, but usually a chronic cough is a cough that's been persistent for longer than 8 to 12 weeks. What's that number you want to remember? 8 to 12 weeks. Does that kind of jive? We're going to talk about chronic cough because on your objectives on cough, they say that they want you to focus on chronic cough because can people come to us, can people come to us, can they have a thing, Doc, I'm coming to you because I've had a cough for the last four months that won't go away? Can that be a common concern? It can, right? So you're going to start off, okay, we're going to start off by doing this. We've got to go through and develop an approach, our approach for chronic cough. Our approach for chronic cough is going to go something like this. You're going to get rid of the easy stuff first, the stuff that you don't want, the no-brainer stuff that they're going to expect you to get rid of on the exam. So give me some common causes of a chronic cough. So everybody say, what medication can cause a cough, folks? And the answer is? AC inhibitors. So don't be like 40% of people when they ask this question, now pick up the person who was on a narrow twice a day. And keep in mind that it can be an idiosyncratic reaction, so it's not necessarily associated to when you started the medication. So people can be on this medication for three years and then develop this cough afterwards. Does that kind of jive? Yeah. Alright, what's another common reason for a cough? Is smoking. What did I say, guys? Another common reason for a cough is? Exactly, right? So if they were smoking, what are you going to say? You know what? It's probably a good time for you to do what? Quit? It's probably a good time for you to quit smoking, right? Is that crystal clear? All right, so we're going to look at, we're going to look at uh, um, uh, um, 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 effects of medications. Big one that you have to keep in mind of are ACE inhibitors, right? Because they can cause a cough. Other big things I want you to keep in mind of is smoking. Does that kind of jive? 
Right? Okay. Now I want you guys to do this. Let's say if the person doesn't have those, those, those factors. Does that make sense? Let's say the person doesn't have, they, they haven't been on an ACE, they haven't been smoked, they don't have any obvious that you can think of that why cause their cough. You're going to ask yourself, maybe this person has a specific diagnosis. Maybe this person has a specific diagnosis. Maybe this person I can diagnose with COPD. Can they present with a chronic cough? And the answer is yes. I have a history of smoking, I have exercise intolerance, I have this you know, intermittent cough, I, I, sorry, I have this persistent cough, it won't go away, I'm, it's producing sputing. Maybe you have COPD. Maybe you have bronchiectasis. Maybe you have tuberculosis. Does that make sense? Maybe I can get a specific diagnosis for why you have your cough. Does that make sense? All right. But let me tell you something, those cases are almost easy, right? Because if I come to you and I say, hi, I have a chronic cough and I've been losing weight, does that make sense? And, and I have an immunosuppressive condition, right? You're going to be a lot more concerned about other factors. Does that make sense? Maybe I have blasto, maybe I have TB, maybe I have a big list of stuff. That's not the hard cases. It's the person who comes inside at 25 years old who's never smoked and who's not on an ACE inhibitor, does that make sense? Who doesn't have any of those other symptoms who comes into your office and say, I'm having a chronic cough. Is that correct? That's what they're going to expect you to know for your exam. Because the other stuff, if I say, oh, you do an x-ray and you see a pneumonia, you do an x-ray and you see tram tracking according to bronchiolitis, oh, you do an x-ray and you see hyalur lymphadenopathy, like TB, does that make sense? You're going to get that diagnosis. You're going to say, you know what? Or you do an x-ray and you see, wow, you have a lung lesion in the periphery that's five centimeters big, does that make sense? You're going to have a pretty good reason why you have a chronic cough. But they're not going to ask you that because that's, that's easy. You can, you, can, you can do that, right? They're going to say you have the situation where the person, you've done them, you've asked all those questions, they're not on an ACE, they're not on any other medications, right? You've done what imaging test is that? X-ray. Does that make sense? And their X-ray looks perfectly normal. They don't have any masses. They don't have any pleural effusions. They don't have any signs of tram tracking associated with bronchi bronchiectasis, right? They don't have an infectious process going on. How are you going to do that? Let me give you guys a little hint. There are three diagnoses that are responsible. There are three diagnoses that are responsible for 99% of cough in people who don't smoke and have a normal x-ray. What did I say? The two criteria is you, can't, you do not smoke and you have a normal x-ray. Those three things are, give me one. Third. Does that make sense? Give me two. Ah, do you write post-nasal drip? Wrong. Wrong. Oh, we're getting sick. Oh, I have to be specific. Upper airway cough syndrome. What did I say? Upper airway cough syndrome. What do you write on the exam? Upper airway cough syndrome. What is it? It's like how we used to call post-nasal drip. Have everybody heard that term, post-nasal drip? Okay, you have bad allergic rhinitis, and that leads to post-nasal drip. Oh, you have a chronic sinusitis, and that leads to bad post-nasal drip. We don't say that term anymore. We call it upper airway cough syndrome. What did I say, Sabri? What do we call it? Excellent. Perfect. And it includes things like allergic rhinitis. It can include things like chronic sinusitis. Basically, stuff from your nasal cavities basically flows to the back of your throat and irritates your cough centers and you start coughing. Does that kind of jive? Right? And what's my other diagnosis? We talked about it last study group. That you can have if you have a stable chest x-ray and you do not smoke. What is the third thing, right? Asthma. What do we say, guys? Asthma. asthma. Can asthma give people a normal chest x-ray? Yes. 
Is that crystal clear? So once you get to, to that, you can say, okay, you know what? Chances are this person has one of these, one of these three things, so I'm going to use my history and my physical exam to guide me for what I think is going on. So this person has symptoms of dyspepsia and those types of things. Maybe they might have GERD. Maybe I have to give them anti-proton pump, inhibitor, uh, uh, pump inhibitors. Maybe I have to give them pro-motility agents. Remember, how do, we, how do we treat it? It's pro-motility. You get stuff moving through so you don't aspirate as much, right? In, in addition to PBIs. Maybe if it's asthma. How do we treat asthma? How do we treat asthma, guys? Excellent, right? So, if, no, um, uh, um, if I give you an adult, I want everybody to write this down, right? Write down occupational asthma. What did I say, guys? Hi, if it's a Sue, if I was asking you guys a Sue, I would say, hi, you have a person who just started working as a custodian in a new hospital, and they're noticing that they now have a chronic cough. They've been at the job for six months, and they've noticed that for the past five months, they've had this chronic pesky cough that won't go away. Can you have occupational asthma that can cause that? Yes. Because all those chemicals that they use in hospitals to clean floors and disinfect surfaces, guess what, folks? Can that stuff irritate? Yes. And can you get occupational asthma? Yes. And how can that present most of the time? Just with a chronic cough. Is that crystal clear? So it's asthma you're going to treat like asthma. Yeah? So is that, is that an obstructive pattern just like asthma, or is that an irritant type of thing? It's more of an irritant type thing. Yeah. It's going to be more of an irritant type phenomenon. But when you, people can still get exacerbations, right? I have a couple patients who had bad, bad occupational asthma at the hospital because of the cleaner that they were using, right? And they came inside, and their big concern was a chronic cough, right? Is that crystal clear? Are we okay for chronic cough now? We're good. What's the investigation you need to make sure that you do, right? X-ray. What did I say, guys? Because remember what we say, our algorithm, only, those three things only apply if you don't smoke and you have a normal or unchanged x-ray. Does that make sense? So if you have a little calcified granuloma, a previous x-ray from 15 years ago shows the same calcified granuloma. Does that make sense? And it hasn't changed. You so far, guys? Yeah. Okay, are we good with cough? It's a snapper. Next thing, okay, what else can give cough? Let's see, a, let's see a, a little kid comes into the emergency room, right? And I give you a station high. You have a, you have a, a year and a half, year old, a year and a half um, old male who comes into the emergency room. Let's use Sudbury in the Sudbury Regional Hospital. Does that make sense? And he's coming inside with a barky cough. What's the first thing you do? What are you going to write on the line? ABCs. like it. Oh. <laughs> That's the first thing, right? Right? So I have to do my ABCs. I still have to do my OMIC. So he's coming, right? And he basically has this barky cough. Does that kind of jive? What else? Remember, barky cough, horse voice. Does that make sense? That can be hot potato voice, those types of things. Huh? Maybe low grade fever. Yeah, exactly. Low grade fever comes inside with that. Right? What are you thinking that he might have? Let's say, let's say they use the classic example of the barky seal cough, which is croup. What is croup? Exactly, right? What, what bacteria, what virus causes a lot of cases of croup? Croup. Parainfluenza virus. Can stuff that causes the common cold cause croup? Yes. But parainfluenza viruses cause the majority of the cases. Does that kind of jive? What's on our differential for when a kid comes with Strider? What did I say, guys? With? Strider. 
Is that like wheeze? No, wheeze is when you breathe out. Stride is when you breathe? Yeah. Excellent. Wheeze is when you breathe? Out. Strider is when you breathe? Yeah. In. So if you have a kid and they come to you with Strider, am I just going to put it on the exam question where I say, oh, this must be croup? No. What else could this be? Give me some things, guys. Huh? Nice. Epiglottitis, right? How old is he? Oh, how old is he? A year and a half. Good. Good, right? So any obstructive thing. Can it be foreign body, guys? You always write that down. You always write that down. Can foreign body produce? Can foreign body produce? Uh, uh, um, I'm Strider. Suppose if it was like I remember what happened in Sioux Lookout, where we didn't pick that up and we did the X-ray and we found a coin in the back of the throat. You saw this little circular thing that was like a a, a, a circular. It was it was uh, it was completely opaque and it kind of looked the size of a of a dime. Is that very good? Because what could that dime do? Maybe it's line, Maybe it's flat. What could it do at any time? It could struck the airway. You might say, oh, Mike, we don't have to worry about epiglottitis. Kids don't get epiglottitis. We had a case of epiglottitis in Sulaco last week. I guess what most epiglottitis is now are atypical. Because a lot of kids are vaccinated. Right? What was the big bug that caused epiglottitis before? It was, Yeah. It was hip, right? But now we know because great kids are vaccinated, right? And now the rate of epiglottitis has completely gone down. What can you also see? You can see atypical cases where kids didn't pre- present. Now, how does epiglottitis present? So we talk about foreign body. We have to think about that, right? How can epiglottitis present? Classically, let's say. Are these kids, like, sick? Are they running around, you know, coloring for you, eating popsicles? Yeah, they tend to be toxic. Yeah. Tripod. They look sick. They're septic often. They can be, they can be, uh, do you want to come up to them and say, hey, Timmy, we're going to start an IV. Yay, let's do that. Let's scare this kid. Does that make sense? Do you want to do that? Because what can they do? They could obstruct. Right? Can that be badness, guys? And the answer is? It can be serious badness. Okay. Not good for a kid with epiglottitis to obstruct. I'm finding an atypical case of epiglottitis can be very, very difficult to manage because how do we normally manage classical cases? Pediatricians will tell you, you know, you intubate them and then you wait for a leak to form around the tube and then you can, you understand, extubate them. And it's like these kids, they don't look that sick. They have all these weird bugs and we know it probably doesn't behave the same as here, but you're like, okay, do I intubate this kid that's like doesn't look that, that sick? Does that make sense? Right? So that's, that's, that's sort of the common thing. But in the classical thought, what you do is you have to secure their airway. So what are you going to write in your exam? You're going to say, I would secure their airway. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? Pardon me? Well, it can be anything, right? Ours is actually pneumococcal. When you got back from Winnipeg, you found it was pneumococcal. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that crystal clear, guys? So in your classical states, remember, they're not going to give you the, the they're going to give you what's, uh, like, what sort of the classic cases or what you want to, what you want to think about. Normally these kids are sick. They have strider, right? They have retractions. They're usually pretty sick. Remember, what's your epiglottis attached to? It's back to your trachea. So can I get a tracheitis? And the answer is yes. Anything that can cause upper airway obstruction can cause this. So can a bad can a bad peritonsillar abscess cause this? Yes. Can a bad retropharyngeal abscess cause this? Yes. Is that crystal clear? But I want you guys, because everybody forgets this every year, is foreign body. What did I say, guys? 
You hear the story how my kid was fine. He was perfectly fine. He was running. Everything was cool. He went into the bathroom and he came out, right? And he was like, he was striderous, right? Foreign body. He was, I didn't see him for a while and he was in the bathroom and he was doing something and he came out striderous, right? Usually those other infectious things, they have a little bit of a prodrome. We all agree? If I give you a sudden change like that, you're going to think, whoa, did this kid take, did this thing, did this kid, is there something in that kid's throat? Is that crystal clear? All right. So of course what I have to do, I have to do my ABCs and I have to assess disease severity. What did I say, guys? I have to assess disease severity. And what's that scoring system that we have for croup called? You need to know what it is. It's called? It's called a Wesley's croup score. Does that make sense? So it basically allows me to stratify how sick a kid is based on certain clinical features. There's a lot of them, but the only one, two I want you to keep in mind are strider at rest and retractions. What did I say? Strider at and retractions. So if a kid has severe retractions and they're having strider at rest, they have a worse case of croup than a kid who just has a barky cough and who's running around the emerge. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? Okay, think about it. How do I manage these kids? Excellent. I have to still do my ABCs, folks. I have to still do my ABCs. Right? Because remember, what, which part of the ABCs can these kids run into significant problems with? Their airway, right? So I have to see, okay, how sick are they? Right? I, I always look for the two things. Because the two things you get the highest points for are whether or not you have strider at rest and how severe your retractions are. Right? So if a kid has a lot of, uh, has a lot of super sternal indrawing and intercostal indrawing and they're working really hard to breathe and they have, and they have the super sternal indrawing and intercostal indrawing, they're working hard to breathe and guess what? They have strider at rest. They potentially have badness. We follow that, folks? All right. So what are we going to do? We do our ABCs, we give oxygen to kids who need it, we, put, put, uh, uh, um, we do our OMIC just like we normally would. What interventions can I do? What, what, uh, what, uh, what interventions can I do? Good. So I can consider in more moderate to severe cases, I consider nebulized epinephrine. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, what else can I give too, right? I can give steroids, steroids right? I can give dexamethasone or a, a cortical steroid, right? for moderate to severe cases. Even in mild cases, you can probably use that as well. It probably um, helps kids so that they don't come back. If I ask the question in what specific medication you would give versus what class of medication, right? If I say what class of medication would you give, corticosteroids would be okay. If I would say what would you order on the eMERGE sheet, then corticosteroid would be wrong. Because you wouldn't write on the eMERGE sheet, give this child a corticosteroid. You'd say to them, okay, what medication would I give? So you can see, remember, a lot of mistakes on the CCFP exam are not because people don't know. It's because if I say what class, that's different than what drug would you give. If I say what class, corticosteroid's okay. If I say what drug and you say corticosteroid, there's no drug called corticosteroid. That's a medication class. So just be aware of that. It depends on how the question is worded, right? Remember, specific question, specific answer. A blood test is not a thyroid ultrasound. I'll tell you guys when we get the thyroid masses, right? That's the biggest mistake that everybody gets, right? What one blood test would you do? Thyroid ultrasound. We get so excited. Thyroid ultrasound, I know what the answer to this is. Does that kind of jive? All right. Perfect. All right. So let's say a kid comes in under the age of two, and they have, uh, 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 they have cough, 
respiratory distress, they can have some wheeze, what can we call them? And they don't have a pneumonia, what can they have? They have bronchiolitis, right? Do, but they, 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 why don't you say that's asthma? It's close enough. Is that close enough? No, bronchiolitis. If you have episodes under two, these episodes are called bronchiolitis. That kind of jive? Asthma is only diagnosed after the age of two. And remember, can you just have one of these episodes, one episode of wheezing as a kid? Are you going to say that kid is asthmatic? No, because asthma is a chronic disease. You don't just have it once when you're two and never have it again. That's a viral-induced wheeze. Or that's what they call at some big hospitals, first episode wheezers. Does that make sense? They don't call them asthma because they don't want to label them asthma because they're not asthma. Because that's a chronic disease. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear, folks? All right. There's the inflammation of the lower respiratory tract. What's the big bug that causes it, guys? RSV. Right? This thing can kind of behave pulmonary similar to asthma in that you don't have so much problems getting air in, you have problems getting air. So these little kids, can they end up really sick? So in every question, do I have to assess my ABCs? And the answer is, you have to. Right? You have to assess your ABCs. Alright, so what would I do guys? Right? So I have a kid, I'm concerned about, uh, I'm concerned about bronchiolitis. Right? Is there any evidence for doing routine chest? So we do chest x-rays on all these kids? No. Even if you're concerned about pneumonia, the kids with bronchiolitis. Actually, you might think that the number one co infection is in bronchiolitis is a pneumonia, but you know what it actually is? It's actually a urinary tract infection. Right? Huh? The number one, the co-infection, right, that you tend to see is not so much a pneumonia, but a UTI, if there is one, right? So if there is, if there is, uh, um, uh, um, um, if there is bronchiolitis, you do not need to do a routine chest x-ray. Does that make sense? You'll do them if you're concerned, more concerned that this kid has something else, i.e. a pneumonia. That's complicating things. Is that crystal clear? Excellent, so we talked what it is, right? It's some inflammation, you kind of get this dunk in your lower respiratory tree. It basically clogs up uh, small airways. When you clog up small airways, air can go in, it can't come out. You run into respiratory distress. Does that kind of jive? Can it kill kids? Yes. Does it mostly kill kids? Absolutely not. Can some kids get really sick? Yes. So what are we going to do for our kid with bronchiolitis? What is going to be an approach to a child with bronchiolitis? Excellent. We always do our ABCs first, right? Does this kid need oxygen? Does this kid need ventilatory support? We have to consider that first, right? How do we treat? What interventions do we do? Now, bronchiolitis is interesting, folks. Very, very interesting. Right? Very, very interesting. Because do we have any recommendations that recommend that a puffer works with everybody with bronchiolitis? And the answer is no. There's no evidence that a puffer, you give up, you know, someone comes in with asthma and you give them Ventolin, chances are they're going to get better. Right? That's what you guys know, right? There's no recommendation that says, you know what, you give all these kids with bronchiolitis and they're all going to get better and they're all going to improve. Is that correct? No. Is that crystal clear? Yeah, I see people measuring like a third, a third, a third rule. You know what I mean? Excellent. Ex 
excellent. So what you can do, why not start with something that's easy to give, like salbutamol? Does that make sense? Because that's available in a puffer. I can give that. I can see, has there been a clinical response? Yes or no. If there has been, continue doing it. If there hasn't been, doing something else. Let's try a different bronchodilator. What's different than, what's different than if these kids don't respond to ventilin? Let's try epinephrine. Let's see if there's an objective clinical response. If there's an objective clinical response, continue doing that. If not, don't continue doing it. You're just going to get all the side effects and not get any benefit. Is that crystal clear? And that's the thing with bronchiolitis. There's no, there's no consistent effects that using any one of these things in all children affects outcomes. And you always kind of say they're doing different studies now. What's the new thing that we give? Hypertonic? Not so much new, but they've been studying it for a little while. What is it called? Hypertonic? Saline nebules, right? There's a couple trials looking at inpatients looking at hypertonic saline nebules, right? They kind of say, we, the question, the thing is, is that we don't really know. The point is for bronchiolitis, what do you do? I always say, Dr. King, an excellent pediatrician in Ottawa, who's like a world-class expert in bronchiolitis, always said, it's like you're weathering a storm. You know bronchiolitis, you kind of get worse for two days, you kind of get, you kind of plateau for a couple days, and then you get better over a few days. So you have to weather the storm. What did I say, guys? You? And he always used to say, you always make sure you do the basics. And what are the basics? Are things like, you know, you thicken the feeds. Does that kind of jive? The basics are things like, you know what, this has happened to your kid a number of times. Maybe you guys should maybe you make sure that we're washing our hands. Give oxygen if they need it. Does that kind of jive? Those are the basics. Treating fever, right? If a kid has such a high respiratory rate, and guess what, you need to throw down an NG so they can feed, do that. Does that make sense? Don't just let them not eat because they can't breathe. Does that kind of jive? And, and wonder why they're taking so long to get better. Is that crystal clear? The basics. What do we say, guys? The basics. Yes, we give puffers, but remember, we don't have consistent evidence to show that any puffer is, is, is going to be beneficial for all kids with bronchiolitis. What about corticosteroids? What about the evidence for corticosteroids? Yeah. Huh? It's interesting. There's one study done by Amy Plint in the University of Ottawa, and they use dexamethasone. Does that make sense? They use dexamethasone. They gave it for, I think, five or six days in combination with epinephrine. Does that make sense? And maybe it might smidgen decrease your chance of being a severe case. Does that kind of jive? Well, keep in mind that was one study. So can you consider it? Does that make sense of kids who are not responding? I guess so. But is it, can you make a consistent recommendation to give these kids oral corticosteroids? Is that part of the guideline? No. Can you make a consistent recommendation just to give these kids inhaled, bronch, uh, inhaled corticosteroids? And the answer is no. What is it you are weathering a storm? Thicken up the feet. Elevate the head of the bed. Make sure if the kid needs oxygen that they get oxygen. Does that make sense? Make sure if the respiratory rate is so high that they can't feed, make sure you throw it on an NG and make sure they're getting nutrition. Because they're not going to get any, any faster, and that's what you're doing. Does that kind of jive? When you're using bronchodilators, right, you can use them, but if you get a an objective response, you continue. If you don't, you have to do something else. Does that make sense, guys? Right? Okay, let's take a little break. Does that sound okay? Sure. So we're going to take a five-minute break. Is that cool? All right. Let me see here.
Okay, folks. Stop for the vaults. You have this thing, remember the vaults? See, look out, vaults, remember? Little tidbits of information, right? So remember, talk about bronchiolitis. I had this kid once, and they had bronchiolitis, and they were born at like 28, 29 weeks gestation age, and what might we consider giving them in the first couple of years of life? What's it called? Not surfactant. Uh, what's it called? Uh, yeah. It's right? It's anti-RSV. Does that make sense? So do we give that to all kids? Absolutely not. But is there a subset of kids? Does that make sense? If they have bad bronchopulmonary dysplasia, if they're premature, does that make sense that we might consider in the first year of life? During the RSV season, you might consider. You see, I could ask you something like that. They're not going to expect you to know it like how a pediatrics resident needs to know it, but know that this stuff exists. So if you see, see a kid come into your office and you're like, well, this kid was born kind of premature and they're heading into their first season of bronchiolitis, it's something that I may consider. What did I say, guys? I may consider. Oh, you have, the guidelines, yeah, I shouldn't say you have, you have to know that you need to give. You understand? Like, you need to know that it exists. You need to know that for, based on certain um, um, criteria, based on certain risk factors in the child, the big one is things like prematurity, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, those types of things, right? That first bronchiolitis season, you may con you, 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 you can you can give this medication. Does that make sense? But we do not give it to all kids, of course, with bronchiolitis, right? It's a specific subset of kids. Is that good? Just remember that. People tend to forget that one on exams. They kind of say, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. 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 But you need to know it. You need to know it that it exists. Oh, it's anti-RSV. It's basically an anti-RSV. Yeah, antibodies. Yeah, synergists. So it's like anti-RSV, antibody. But I've only had one kid ever on it, like one or two kids ever on it, and they got it from pediatrics and that type of thing. So, but you just have to know that in kids with the first bronchi season, yeah. Oh no, sometimes it's two seasons. The two seasons, yeah. Bronchial pulmonary dysplasia, yeah. Uh, yeah. Heart disease, yeah. Blue. Yeah. Exactly. Like cyanotic heart disease. There's just there's conditions. Just realize that in high risk infants that you give this stuff because you wouldn't believe how often they like to throw this in and no one remembers it. Right? Does that kind of jive? They're not going to ask you the specific indications, but realize that you have certain you have certain you meet certain criteria. You're going to give this stuff. I don't walk around knowing. You know, like they're not going to say at what, and they have specific criteria and cutoff and stuff like that too, and what age and what month and that type of thing. Don't worry about like knowing it like that. Just know it like you give this stuff for kids who have like bad, you know, congenital heart disease. You give it for bad bronchopulmonary dysplasia, prematurity. Does that make sense? In their first couple seasons of bronchiolitis, like that's more than enough. Oops. We good so far? Excellent. So what's that new medication? I'm going to go back a couple guidelines. Let's put this in the vault, guys. Make the symbol for the vault. There we go. What's another medication that you need to know about? Again, it's not like you need to know this like a respirologist knows this, right? What medication do you have that's new out for asthma? What's it called again? Olmalizumab. Someone Google that right now. What's it called? Asthma. Pardon me? Asthma. Right? It's like an anti-IgE, right? It's like IgE sort of therapy. So they'll give it, for example, if kids qualify based on, they have to have a certain level of IgE. So they'll use it for kids with really, really severe asthma. So they're above the age of 12, right? 
Is that kind of job? Just know that it's a class of medication that you consider in older kids, adults with asthma. Does that make sense? We good so far? Let's put another thing in the vault. Remember something came out with the asthma guideline? Now for years, what were respirologists saying? Like, remember when, remember when respirologists would say, oh, we never, do you always do you increase the dose of the inhaled corticosteroid for a short period of time? Do we always do, huh? Remember they used to harp on us and say, never, ever do that. Does that kind of jive? You think this person has an asthma exacerbation? Then give them, you know, oral corticosteroids. Does that make sense? We all remember hearing that? What's new with the update now? That they give the option for adults. And they define that as above 12. Does that make sense? Not for young kids. Yeah? What can, what, what can you give? You can use a LABA, but what you can actually use is that there's a certain combination that you may consider up, up increasing fourfold the dose of corticosteroid for 7 to 10 days. Does that make sense? If you're on a LABA as well as an inhaled corticosteroid. Only in adults. Does that make sense? If they're in the yellow zone, the yellow zone of their asthma action plan. So keep that in the vault, because that's changed. Is that in the vault, guys? There you go. Yeah. Oh, it's not in the vault. Okay, repeated. So basically, remember your asthma action plan? Remember it's like green, yellow? Does that make sense? And then like red, get yourself to the hospital because you're like in serious trouble, right? So the problem was is that what do you kind of do in the yellow zone, right? So what they did for adults, older kids, what they showed is that if you give them a four-fold increase in their corticosteroid, that's an option, like, like, an, like, like that's an option to consider right in older kids and in adults for kids who are that are in the yellow zone for their asthma does everybody understand that so their asthma is getting a bit more uncontrolled does that make sense they're moving into that yellow zone remember that asthma action plan patient directed management right if they're moving into that yellow zone that's something to consider that's very new with the guideline right that just came out a few months ago does that kind of jive so that's something to consider. Do you do that in a five-year-old? The answer is no. Can you consider that in a 24-year-old? The answer is yes. Does that kind of jive? So you do a short, and you're using the inhaled corticosteroid if you up the dose by about four-fold for seven to ten days. That's kind of new. We're going to put that in the vault, right? That's one of the new recommendations. Does that kind of jive? And that might be an option that they may tell you. What are my two options for the yellow zone? Sure, I can still give prednisone. I can still treat that exacerbation as I would. And that's still first line for what I do in kids and what I do in all kids below the age of 12. But what additional option that I have, right, in older kids and adults, right, and I basically just do it in adults, right, is basically to increase the inhaled corticosteroid fourfold. Have you ever heard of that before? Just came out, right? Keep that in the vault. We all going to keep that in the vault? So if I ask you that question on the exam, you're going to be good. It's an option for adults. Does that kind of jive? Subtle. And you see, it's so against what we're all kind of used to doing, right? Remember when we were there saying, don't do that, don't do that. And then they kind of said, well, it's kind of an option that you may consider. And this is not no, this is, this is not like someone comes into the emergency and they can't breathe. Does that make sense? It's not that, right? This is someone, remember we talked about the asthma action plan? Does that make sense? This is someone who has the asthma action plan and they're moving into the yellow zone. Remember green zone, everything's good. Yellow zone, okay, I got to watch out. Red, get to the hospital. Does that make sense? This is in the yellow zone. So they're coming inside, Doc. I've been noticing an increased cough and be a little bit more shortness of breath over the past week or two. Does that make sense? Is that crystal clear? Subra, you got that? All right. Perfect. What time is it now, guys? Quarter it. Damn it. <laughs>
Sudbury, I, you know what? I, and that means it's probably almost 11 o'clock there, right? No, it's the same. No, it's the same day. No, 11 o'clock. No, they're an hour ahead. No, they're the same time. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm sorry. I'm still in Central. Sorry. I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm, like, I'm thinking we're in Central and they're in, uh, they're in, uh, they're in Eastern. I forgot. Uh, I forgot. How about what we do? I wanted to get through diabetes and dyslipidemia, but we're going to be doing this for two days. Uh, um, two days in, um, in, we're going to be doing this in two days in, uh, in December. So how about we do it at that time? Does that sound okay? Because it's already quarter to ten. Just so we're not here until like 10, 30, 11 o'clock like, at night. Does that sound okay? And you guys have academic tomorrow. Was it useful today, guys? All right. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Sabri. All right.